0: Well, it's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Long ago, uh, Debbie and I uh, determined that we would encourage our children to learn to play music so that they could use it to minister for the Lord. And we're really thankful for uh, the privilege to minister with them and to share with you out of the Word this morning. I'd like to speak to you from a very unusual book in the Bible, a book of literary art, A book of deep theological import, a book of rich spiritual truth, a book that brings joy to the hearts of those who read it, a book which gives personal testimony. Matter of fact, one commentator wrote, so thin a book was so thick a subject. You look through this book and it's so profoundly human. It's a book that speaks about hunger. It's a book that speaks about weary travel. A book that speaks about exile, a book that speaks about uncertainty, about grief, about loneliness, about personal tragedy, about death, about singleness. Some of you know something about that. Uh, A book about marriage, a book that speaks about love, about romance, about commitment, about courage, about graciousness, about gentleness, faithfulness. Patience, trust, humility. And as you dig a little deeper into this book, you see that it speaks of failure. It speaks of success. It speaks of troubles. It speaks of industry. It speaks of climate, of culture, of vulnerability. It's a book that speaks about decision making, about doing what's right, about doing what's wrong. About subordination of personal ambitions to that which is most important. It speaks about virtue, it speaks about wealth, it speaks about poverty, it speaks about integrity. It speaks about legal dealings, financial dealings, accountability, so many things. This little book in the Word of God, uh, which gives us so much about our daily lives. As we look at this book, we see the ways of God in dealing with human men. How God raises up leaders from His people. They start with with a very small, simple beginning, and they come to greatness. It's a book about the hiddenness of God. At a time like our own, when when He is not working in miracles and visions and dreams, when He is, these things are absent and He works through the little things of life. And finally, it's a book about God's presence in ordinary ways of our lives. And the book that I want to speak to you about this morning, then, is the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, all of those things that I gave you, all of those things that I mentioned, are found in a profound way in this little book of some four chapters and 85 short verses. The book of Ruth. Would you turn there with me this morning as we look at this book and we see the hand of God in the Davidic monarchy as he brings David to the forefront through the line of Boaz and Ruth. Now, Ruth is a book about God's dealings in ordinary things. We see in the book of Ruth the unvoiced dream of every woman or man, that their work, their play, their family, their friendship, all of those things would be something of significance when they depart, that there might be some significance for eternity. And we see how God, in working through Naomi and Ruth, made their work for eternity. Ruth is a book about being godly in the little affairs of life. In the day-to-day things where you and I live our lives and having integrity and godliness and those things, that's what this book is all about. Ruth is a book about God's hesed or his loyal love. That way in which he puts his arm of loving kindness around the believer and he protects the believer and sometimes the pill is bitter. Sometimes it is difficult, but yet God never leaves the book God never leaves the believer. He never leaves them, as we see in the book of Ruth. He is always there. In short, Ruth is a book about life where you and I live it. It's about all those little simple things that make up life. And it brings out these things to us in a very unique way. And I just commend it to you to study this morning. Now, let's just look in this book for you, if you will, for a minute, just in terms to get the overview. If I could just introduce it to you this morning and then... Uh, encourage you to study it further than what we can do here. By way of purpose, there's a threefold purpose in the book of of Ruth. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 10, we see first of all that it is to provide for us a lineage of David to Christ. In Ruth chapter 4 and verse 10, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Boaz says, from the widow Malan to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased for his inheritance. So that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brother or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And you turn the page and you go on and you see that Ruth and Boaz were privileged to be the father of Obed, who was privileged to be the father of Jesse, verse 17, who was to be the father of David. And so the book of Ruth is to preserve for us the lineage of David. Secondly, the book is to show the grace of God in welcoming foreigners into the children of Israel. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 12, we see that Ruth is a Moabitess. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. And yet we are told by Boaz in verse 12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages. Be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And so the message of the book is that an outsider, a foreigner, can come in and, and find a place of refuge. He can be under his wings, and the Lord reaches out for him. As Jesus prayed in Luke thirteen thirty four of Jerusalem, how oft would I have wanted to gather you under my wings like a hen gathered its bruise, and you would not. And so the book shows that clear message of the Lord to reach out and to bring the foreigners in. But thirdly, we see that it demonstrates the function of the kinsman redeemer. In chapter 3 and verse 9, you see that God provided a kinsman redeemer. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. As we go on and read in the book, we see that Boaz was the kins redeemer. Not the closest, but he was the kinsman who redeemed Naomi through Ruth. And in doing so, he ...provided a way in which Naomi's name could stay alive... ...and that she could have a significance in her life. Let's look quickly at the people. Go back to chapter 1 of this book. We've seen the purpose. The people back in chapter 1 are very simple. We see in verse 2, the first man, his name is Elimelech. Elimelech means God is king. God is king. He's a name, a name from Judah, and we find later on that he is from the clan of Bethlehem... ...and he's the husband of Naomi... Naomi there, uh, you see his wife in verse 2, her name means pleasantness or delight. It means that which is, is delightful, my pleasantness. And he called his wife my pleasantness. But yet in chapter 1 and verse 20, we find that Ruth or Naomi comes to the place where she has gone through so much grief that she actually disavows her own name. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. The Almighty hath dealt bitterly with me. And so she was one who had gone so far in grief that actually she was willing to divest herself of her name. She said Mara would be her name. Going back, we also see two sons of Naomi and Elimelech. They are Malon and Chilion there in verse 2. And they also have two children. Or excuse me, they also have two wives. And they are Ruth and Orpha. Ruth and Orpha. We see that Malon and Chilion die in Moab. They live about ten years and then they die. The two daughters, Orpha turns back, as we read in chapter 1 and verse 15, so that she can remarry again. But Ruth, in a very precious passage in chapter 1 and verse 16, stays with Naomi to be a daughter. Matter of fact, her name means a female friend, a female friend. And she would be the friend of Naomi and stay with her the rest of her life. Look at verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you and to turn back from following you. But where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. So she was willing to give up her land and everything and her people and go and be with Naomi and her people. Boaz is the last character that we see in the book and Boaz's name means to be nimble. And he was the one who was this wealthy Bethlehemite, this kinsman redeemer who comes alongside Naomi and Ruth and becomes the one who redeems them as we see the plot unfolding before us. Now, let's just talk about that plot for a minute. I think we can summarize it in five passages. If you look quickly with me at chapter 1, verse 22, we see a progression in the life of Ruth, which really sums up the plot of this book. In chapter 1, verse 22, we see Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabitess. In this opening statement about Ruth, she's called the Moabitess, the foreigner, the one who was from another country. We come to chapter 2 and verse 13 and we find it says there, and, and she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have confronted me and or comforted me and indeed you have spoken kindly of your maidservant. Now she is no longer the Moabite, it's the foreigner, but she is the maidservant, which means she is a servant, but she's not eligible for marriage yet. So she's, she's come from a foreigner to a maidservant. Then in chapter 3 and verse 9, we see that she comes another step. She says, I am Ruth, your maid. The difference between a maid servant and a maid is that a maid was eligible for marriage, whereas the maid servant was not. So she progresses from a foreigner to a maid servant who was not eligible to a maid who was, and then finally in 3.11, Boaz looks at her and she says, Oh, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will go from wherever you... I will do for whatever you ask. For all my people in the city... Know that you are a woman of excellence. And so she goes now from a maid to a woman of excellence. And that is the same word that we see in Proverbs 31 to describe the excellent or the virtuous woman. And so in Boaz's eyes, she has now become a woman of excellence, one that could be his wife. And then finally, in chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of man, to be my wife. So the plot of the book of Ruth is the Moabitess who became a maid servant, who became a maid, who became a woman woman of excellence and virtue, who finally became the wife of Boaz. And the lesson, I think, is very clear that God would elevate the status of those who will wait on him. God will elevate, as he did, this woman. And there's a lesson there for all of us, not just for ladies who would be married, but for all of us, that if we wait patiently on the Lord, God will raise us. God will honor in due time. And God's crowning gift to Naomi, sustaining her in her old age, was to give her a son, which the text says in chapter 4 and verse 15, was more than seven sons. Because this is the son that would bring about David, who would bring about Jesus Christ. And so we see in the in the life of Naomi then, her name begins with blessedness. She goes into a time of deep bitterness. And in the end, she is blessed more than the beginning. What a precious uh, tale of the Lord and how he honors those uh, who, uh, who trust him, even when they fall into difficult times. Well, let me encourage you to look at the book of Ruth and to study it more than, than we can look at it here. But it's a very precious book. It covers so many things that relate to our everyday life. And I encourage you and commend you to look at this book. In the time that remains, what I'd like to do this morning is just challenge you with one lesson from the opening verses of this book that I think is very Helpful to our lives. Let me read to you chapter one, verses one to five. Now, it came about in the day when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephraimites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took of themselves Moabite women as wives, and and the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived for about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. The account here is very simple, and I think there's a tremendous lesson to be learned. And the lesson to be learned is this. It's the lesson of fleeing to a foreign land, to a Moab, in the time of famine. And Ruth 1.1 describes that in very graphic detail for us as it unfolds the story. Of this man, Elimelech, whose name was God as king, who fled to a foreign land in the time of famine. And I believe there's a lesson there for you and I, as we look at the famines in our own life, that we would learn not to flee from those famines that come into our life. Now, let's look at the national setting here. We read in the first verse that this was the day of the judges. And you recall that after, after the time of Joshua's death, in Judges chapter 1, all the way up to the coronation of Saul, that there was a period in which the land was judged by these various judges. And these judges were uh, going all the way back to Exodus 18 with Jethro, where uh, we are told that the, the, the people were divided up, And there were various judges to make decisions for the people. It was a period of spiritual darkness. As you remember in Judges 17 and verse 6, the Bible says, Every man did which was right in his own eyes. And so people were lawless. They were unaccountable. They were going here and there, doing whatever they wanted. The law had been rejected. And each man had more or less reduced to doing what he in his heart had, uh, had evaluated and decided was right. And that's what he did. The result was an invasion of apostasy. A, literally, a collapse of Israel and an incredible amount of unchecked lawlessness which had come in, much like the society of our own where everybody does their own thing and does what is right in their own eyes. Well, the principle of divine government was very much alive in the days of the judges. It was a very unusual principle uh, as we look, try to look at it from our day, but it was the way, it was the guiding principle of life in those days. And that is that, that if you disobeyed God or if you were disloyal to God, disaster would come. A famine would come, there would be suffering as a result of disobedience, and on the other hand, in terms of obedience and loyalty, there would be relief from famine. And literally God put Israel in this place where where they were judged or with blessing or with famine based on how they lived in the land. In second chronicles seven fourteen it says, If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then he will pour out the blessing. And so it required the obedience of of the people in order for there to be blessing on the physical land. And it was a direct result to how they lived personally, to how they were treated in the land in which God had put them. Beyond that, there was also the judges who were told were judging the people. And the, judgments, the judging of the judges was basically the dynamic of asking the Lord for what he wanted of the people. In Exodus chapter 18 and verse 15, we see that whole dynamic played out where Moses says, To his father-in-law, because the people came to me to inquire of the Lord. That is to make a judgment, to ask judgment, so that he, Moses, and others would then need to make a judgment. In Deuteronomy 1.17, the Bible says judgment is God's. In Isaiah 61 and verse 18, again, it says God loves justice. And so God was a God who would judge, and he was acting these judgments out to these various judges. And they were to judge the people and make judgments over various issues in the land. And so it involved a, discrimi- a discrimination between what is right and what is wrong, uh, a discerning between what was right and what was wrong, as we read in First Kings chapter three and verse nine. It involved for Solomon an understanding of what was right to judge the people right before the Lord. And so here were these judges whose job it was to make good judgment, and in all of this, every Israelite then was called upon to make judgment. And so here is a who is a king or at least a leader. Uh, in this town, perhaps not a king, but he was a, he was a ruler, his name was God as king and he, like many of the others who had to judge uh, was responsible to make a judgment on a various issue and only only godly ones could judge only the man of God could judge, but every every man of God had to judge just like you and I need to make uh, good spiritual decisions in our lives today and so in a day of upheaval and a day of disobedience and a day of sweeping unbelief, the people of God were asked to make. A judgment, And the decision we see here of Elimelech was to choose either to stay in the land during the famine or to go to a foreign land during the famine. Now, let's look at the spiritual setting here. A famine came into the land. We read that in, in the opening part of Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. A famine came into the land. Now, as I said before, a famine was no accident. Israel is the land between. It was the land between various uh, continents. There's a huge rift valley that goes right through the land of Israel as it separates Egypt from Mesopotamia. And that rift valley is a tremendous crevice between two parts of the earth. It's really an earthquake heaven. You think we have it bad here. uh, That is the place where these continents come together and tremendous upheaval is there. And in the same way, the climate is is very much the same where the wind can blow in uh, off the west over the Mediterranean and there can be great harvest or the wind can blow in off the desert and there can be tremendous famine. And all God had to do was change the course of the wind uh, for six or seven years and the people would have an incredible famine. Or he could change the wind the other way and they would have tremendous blessing. And so a famine had come into the land. And undoubtedly that famine was for judgment. And Elimelech was faced with the principle of what to do in famine. Now what does the Bible say to do in famine? If you turn to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible is real clear as to what the believers were to do in the time of famine. And it's not just here. It's in many places. But listen to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I heard in my inward parts trembled and the sound of my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. And in my place I trembled because I must wait quietly on the day of distress for the people to rise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Here comes the famine. And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield... So the olive should fail. And fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, there will be no cattle in the stalls. So this is a destitute famine. Verse 18. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. It's easy to exalt in the Lord when there's lots of food. But the Bible says you exalt in the Lord during the famine. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength in the famine. He, he has made my feet like Heinz feet; He makes me walk on my high places. And so in the time of famine, the command was very clear. Elimelech like knew what to do. In the time of famine, do you flee? Do you run to Moab where there's food or do you wait on the Lord? No, you wait on the Lord. So here comes the drought, here comes the disease, here comes all this famine. And yet the command of God is to wait. Other passages, Amos 4, 6 says, I gave you lack of bread in all your places. In other words, that was of the Lord when that famine comes. And child of God, when a famine comes into your life, that's of the Lord too. The Lord's trying to get your attention. And as Israel is old, the famine was the stick of correction that God would use to bring into the lives of the people to wake them up, to get their attention, to bring them to their senses. And it was... Never the time to flee. It was the time to hunker down, to begin to think about why this famine is here. And as we just read in Habakkuk, to wait on the Lord and see what it would be that he would have for us in the time of famine. And so in the current setting, a famine has hit the land. Undoubtedly due to disobedience. If you look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6, Naomi makes an interesting little statement that gives us an indication that this was a famine due to judgment. And she arose, we're told, with her daughters-in-law and that she might return to the land of Moab... For she had heard, excuse me, returned from the land of Moab. For she had heard um, in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited. And literally the text uh, in the original says, revisited his people in giving them food. In other words, he visited them the first time and gave them famine because there was hardship. Now he revisited them and gave them food. And so undoubtedly for disobedience and undoubtedly for um, something that he wanted to teach them, he had sent a famine in the land. The incident at hand, of course, is Elimelech, a leader in Israel. As we said before, one of, uh, in which the whole city was looking to for leadership. He was uh, one who was of great significance. The whole clan knew about him. Chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that when Naomi came back, it says when they both came to Bethlehem, it says that everyone came out to see them. Because they all knew about Elimelech. They all knew how he had flown the coop, so to speak. They knew about Naomi and the time she had spent over there, and they all came to welcome them back. And so this was a man of significance. His name was God as king. He was a Bethlehemite, that is, a clansman from Bethlehem. And he had taken up, if you will, temporary residence in all places. He had taken it up in Moab. It's interesting because the word Bethlehem means a house of bread and and promise. Bethlehem means the place of bread. Well, the place of bread had given them no bread. And Elimelech knew that that was the place of bread, and yet he went over to Moab in its place. Now, the text says he sojourned in Moab. He sojourned in Moab. So a sojourn means to take up a temporary occupancy, a temporary residence. It's basically the idea of one who would become a resident alien. He never becomes a citizen. But here's this resident alien who goes to this temporary place and literally... Uh, He goes from the familiar, Bethlehem, to the unfamiliar. He goes from the place that he's known to this unknown place so he can get some food. And that was not uncommon. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham was told not to go to Canaan when he heard about the famine? And he goes, excuse me, he was told to go to Canaan, but he heard about the famine. And so instead he goes to Egypt and the Bible says he sojourns there. And Abram sojourned in Egypt, and there is not one shred of biblical proof that the Lord exonerated that in his life. There was great negative consequences as a result of that time when he goes to Egypt. You remember Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 3, who was told specifically by God not to go sojourn in Egypt in the time of famine. And God commanded him not to go down there. You remember Joseph in Genesis 47 and verse 4, who sojourned in Egypt because of the famine. That's why he went down there in the first place. He went down there, as you remember, to get food. And so it was not uncommon to leave Israel in the time of testing rather than to wait for the Lord. They went down uh, to remedy the situation in in a foreign country. And here is Elimelech, and he goes to Moab. Now, Moab was certainly a place of wealth. It was a place of food. In fact, Psalm chapter 108, uh, verse 9, calls it my washbowl in that uh, That God was pretty disgusted with the place because while there was all this wealth and all of this plenty, there was all this evil. There were all these evil gods. This was really the enemy of the Lord. If you go back to Judges chapter 3 and verse 12, we see actually an extended passage 12 through 20 that the enemy of the God of God lived in Moab. So really what Elimelech did then is flee to the enemy camp to get some food in the time of a famine. And here he is moving to a place that is dangerous. A place that is spiritually shameful, a place where he cannot be uh, with his people. Now look at the picture here. The famine were common; fleeing from famine was common. And Elimelech made a choice. He made a choice to go down to eat, or go down to Moab, and to dwell there for a time. Well, he goes, he goes there, and uh, despite the fact that God would would have preserved him, he goes there, and the result is that he remains there. Chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us he remained there a long time. In fact, he took his children there and his children go and they marry there. And his children marry there and they live there 10 years. And then these two men die and their wives are left. And so here is Naomi. And we're told in verse 5, as we read before, that now her husband has died. And 10 years later, her two children die. And the text says she is bereft of. Of her two children and her husband. The idea is there is accumulated grief which got worse and worse and worse. First she loses her husband. Then she loses her children. She gets to the point where she says, I have nothing. She's in total grief. She's totally devastated. She lost everything. In other words, Elimelech went down there to get a little food. And he comes back with grief. matter of fact, he didn't come back at all. Naomi comes back with grief and with death and with tragedy. The blackness of famine. You say, what could be worse? Well, death is worse. The famine turns into a death. And God took away everything that Naomi had, and all she is left with in this foreign land uh, is, is herself and these two daughters in law. And she comes to the place in verse uh, 20 where she says, The Lord Almighty hath done bitterly with me. Don't even call me by my name. I've been through so much, it's been so hard. Don't even call me. Pleasantness call me bitterness. And so here she is at, at perhaps the lowest point of her life where God through death had gotten uh, the attention of this family. He had woken up this family and it's now time for her to go back. And the blessing in all of this, of course, is that Naomi in, in her in her misguided way tells these two daughters-in-law that you, go back to your own God's. She even forgot her God. She says go back to your own God's. And uh, Ruth says, I won't go. I'll stay with you. And so the blessing is that God gives Ruth to Naomi. And they go back. They go back to this prince. They go back and, of course, they're received. And the story goes on. And we don't have time to develop it here. But there are several principles that I think we see in, in this fleeing from famine that we see Naomi uh, and Elimelech and these others doing. This tragedy, some have called this book, like the prodigal son, they've called this book the story of the prodigal family. Because here's a whole family, family who knew better, a family of prominence, who goes and they leave all of their own, all those who know them, and they go in this land and they're there as a prodigal family until finally the Lord brings them back after much hardship and much difficulty. And the principles are these. Number one, there's the principle of the high calling that God gives us and with it high responsibility. When he makes us a leader in his kingdom, when he calls us to himself and he and he saves us and he makes us an Elimelech and he asks us to stand up for what's right, uh, with that calling of high re- is also high responsibility. That you can't flinch. You can't go off and leave the place of bread, Bethlehem, and go to a foreign place if you do. Uh, you have left your Lord. Secondly, God wanted to provide for those who trust in him. He wanted to provide for Elimelech right there, as he promised so many times in Scripture. He wanted to give them... Food in the famine. And if they would have just waited out the famine and them provision. matter of fact, Naomi finally hears that God did revisit His people and did uh, give them a provision and that's why she returns. And you know, in all of that, the Lord didn't kill those others back in Bethlehem. They were still there. They just went through the famine. They went through the hard times. Thirdly, to live for the Lord and to wait for the relief in famine is what God would have us do. And I think the lesson of Ruth for you and I this morning is that the famines are going to come into our life. And we are called upon God to live through the famines without turning to the right or to the left. Not to flinch in the time of famine. If you seek relief of hardship outside uh, of God's will and outside of God's provision, uh, then we are actually seeking something other than what He would have for us. And that is wrong. And lastly, we need to learn not to run from the time of famine in our own life. That is, that God is still the God in hard times. God is still the God in famine. He is still there with us uh, in hard times. Let me try to apply that principle or these principles by asking you two questions this morning. Question number one is this. How do you deal with the famines that come into your life? All of us have famines, and this is a very real question. I don't know what your famines are. You don't know what all of mine are. But how do you deal with the famines that come into your life? Can you justify, can I justify running from God in the time of a famine? You say, well, the Lord never forsook Naomi, that's right, but boy, did she go through grief. She lost nearly everything, and the Lord was faithful to her in spite of all that, but God does not want us to run in famine. Can we justify running in the time of famine? You see, can the people to whom God has given so much leave what God has given them and go to a foreign land? Of course not. The question becomes, where is your God in the time of your famines? Do you really believe He's still there? Do you really believe He is with you, taking you through that hard time? Turn to Leviticus, if you will, chapter 26, and verse 3, where God gives us a statement about famines. Leviticus chapter 26, the extended passage 3 through 12, we won't look at all of it, but just look at 3 through 6. The whole thing deals with the subject. In Leviticus 26, and verse 3, God shows that He wants to deliver us, just like He wanted to deliver Israel of old. He says, "You walk." He says, "If you walk in My statutes, and you keep My commandments, as to carry them out, then I will give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing, uh, your threshing will last for you until the great gathering, and the great gathering will last until." The sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. Now, he says that to people who are used to going through famines. And he says, if you will do what's right, I will give you the fullness of food. I will give you what is important. I will give you what you need. He says in verse 4, I'll give you provision. In verse 5, as we read, he'll give you security. And in verse 6, he says, I will grant you peace. I'll give you peace in the land. You see, the way to provision and security and peace is not to run and try to get it someplace else. It's to sit there and wait on the Lord to see what it is that He is trying to teach us in the time of famine. And let me just urge you to this principle that you find the solution to the famine and the hardships in your life within the provision of the Word of God. Don't run from the Word. Don't run from the the book. but, But go to the book even in the time of famine. You see? And to sharpen that a little bit, find the solution of your problem within yourself. If you have a famine in your life, a problem within your life, you can't look outside yourself. You have to look inward and say, what is in my life that's wrong? What is in my life that can change? What can I do? You can't blame it on someone else because you can't change them. You can't blame it on your circumstances. Look inward and find within yourself those things that you can confess and forsake and turn to the Lord within that can fix what is wrong and why this famine has come. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul speaks about the famines that are in his life, about the weakness in his life. And he says in chapter 12 and verse 10, Therefore, I am well content with weakness. Can you say that this morning? When a famine comes into your life, Paul says, I'm well content with weakness and with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. For Paul, it wasn't to run in the time of famine. It wasn't to flinch in the time of famine. It was to be determined to stay there and find the solution to that problem within the Word of God. You see, we cannot run. What do you do in the time of your famine? Let me just widen this up a little bit and ask a second question. And this goes back to the the fact that Ruth or Elimelech did not do this alone. Elimelech had a wife. He had two children, and maybe you don't have a wife yet or a husband. Maybe you don't have children yet, but think in terms of those children who you will soon have if the Lord gives them to you, and many of you will. And the question then becomes this in light of the text. What do you tell your children who look up to you when you flinch or when you forsake God's chosen place in time of famine? How do you explain this compromise, this, this choosing not the place of the Lord? How do you explain that to your children, you see? Here's a leader, Elimelech, a, a leader in his family, a leader in his clan, in front of all these people, in front of his, his own two sons. Can you imagine Naomi sitting down with little Malon and little Chilean after the death of her husband, their father, and explaining to them what they are doing in Moab and why they're there and why everybody else that they know is still back in Bethlehem uh, waiting for the famine to pass? You see, it's very hard to, to, to explain compromise Explain it to your children. You see, when you flinch and you compromise, you plunge your children into an almost irrevocable lifestyle. Yes, the Lord can lift them up out of it, but many times uh, it's an incredible statement upon them of ungodliness. And so it is not just you who would flinch in the time of famine, but you take your children with you. And maybe they're not even born yet, but someday when God gives you children, they will remember what you did. They will remember what we did. And so you plunge your children into almost an irrevocable lifestyle. Secondly, your children do not know, they do not know the thought process or the risks of the compromise that you take. In other words, you say, well, I can get away with it because I know what the risks are. But your children don't know that. All, All they know is what they see. They don't have the same reference point you have. And so it's much easier for them to go deeper into that sin because they see... What you did. Elimelech says, I'll just go down there and get some food. He winds up giving his children to foreign wives. He gives his children to to wives who, in the case of one, was probably not even a believer. And so children don't understand the risks. And children then will multiply the sins of the fathers. And we see that here. And so a father's question or a father's small move, run over to Melab to get some food, becomes a son's doctrine. A father's action becomes a son's lifestyle. Someone once said, "You sow a thought, and you reap a deed. You sow a deed over and over again, and you reap a habit. You sow a habit, and you reap a character. You sow a character, and you reap a destiny." And as Proverbs twenty-three and verse seven says, "As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he." And he begins, "This is a thought to go and to flinch in time of hardness, and be sore. You know it. Your children are there, and and they are they are so deep into this thing they can't get out of it. We must give our children something." to see in front of us. We must give them something to live for. And maybe your children aren't even born yet, but you need to even think of that now uh, When before you would go and flinch in the time of famine. You have to think of that now when, when you think of all those others who are watching you. you see. There's a direct connection then to what we do and our own self-confidence, our own self-worth, our own obedience. And I would say even more so there's a direct connection between the confidence of our children and the self-worth of them and the morality and integrity of them and what we do. And our thoughts many times become their deeds. And so there's a simple conclusion to this, and that's that we as the people of the king, the Elimelechs of our day, cannot afford to flinch in a time of famine. You think about the famines in your life and the ones that that you can't anticipate that will come tomorrow. And the one thing you have to know that you can't do is flinch. You can't flee down to Moab to to take the easy way out. And as you get older in life, the stakes get higher and the, and the opportunities get greater At turn. And we have to keep coming back to the simple truths that we cannot go outside the land that God has put us and find the solution to our problem somewhere else. And furthermore, we can't take our children, those precious ones who would follow us, into such a place of captivity. You know, there was a time in the history of um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he came to the Diet of Worms. And he knew in his mind that he was going to die for what he had said and what he had written. They piled all his books up, and they were getting ready to confront him. And he asked if he could have one day before he answered uh, this whole issue of are these your books and should I recant. And that night he went back to the place um, where he was staying, and he prayed a prayer. A man who was who was faced with do I maintain my integrity and lose my life or do I give it up now when I'm called in front of all these people to renounce the very thing that is most dear to me? And he prayed this incredible prayer and I just want to read you part of it this morning to encourage you uh, that that we can be strong in the time of famine. The time of ultimate test. Those things many times come very little in our heart. They're not necessarily a big thing like Luther in front of a whole diet of worms but but still the, whole, the point is the same that we cannot flinch. Listen to what Luther prayed. He said, Oh God... Almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is the world! Behold, how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and bow small my faith before thee. O oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of, of Satan, if I am to depend upon my strength of this world, all is over. The mill is struck, sentence has gone forth. O oh God, O oh God, O oh thou my God, Help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldest do this by thy own power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with this great man of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is thine. You see, that is righteous and everlasting. O oh, Lord, help me. O oh, faithful and unchanged God, I am not upon man. I were vain. Whatever is of a man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? O God, art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst not die. Thou dost not bid thyself. Thou didst choose me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not. For the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defender, my buckler, and my strength. And then he concluded, Lord, where art thou? My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee. I am ready. Behold me, prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy. It is thine own. I will not let them go, nor yet for all eternity. And through the world, and the world be thronged with devils, and this body which is the work of thine bonds should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, put to pieces, consumed ashes, my soul is thine. Yet I have thine own word. Ensure uh, me of it. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Amen. O oh, God send help. Amen. And I would just encourage you that in the time of deepest famine, To pray a prayer of commitment to our Lord. Don't flee in famine. Don't flinch in hard times. Be strong in the Lord. And wait on God to bless in famine. Wait on God to use that famine to teach you the lessons that He would have you use or have you learn. That He would use that famine as that stick in your life and in my life to make us what He would have us be. And either now in school or later in ministry or or in life's vocation, that we would never turn from those principles that God has given us here. Let me stand and close in a word of prayer. Let us pray together. Lord, I just thank you so much for the precious privilege of standing before these wonderful students. I thank you, Lord, for each one of them. Lord, you've brought them here in your sovereignty and in your providence. You have protected them. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage them today, that you would mold them through the feasts and the famines that you would bring into their lives to be more Christ-like. Lord, I pray that you would keep them from the evil one, that you would keep them from turning to the right or to the left in the time of famines. Lord, we know that they are incredibly hard, but they are not to be compared with the the shame and the misery of of failure. And so, Lord, we pray for your sake and for their sake and for their children's sake that you would keep them from clinching in the time of famine. Thank you for this precious little book, Lord, this book that says so much in so few words. Make us students of this book And of your book. And bless, we pray this day as we go from here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and have a good day.